remain standing for our sermon text from 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Pay close attention to God's inerrant word. Let no one despise your, your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We ask God for your blessing on the reading of your word and on the teaching and exhortation in the next several minutes. We pray that you would open our hearts to the gospel and to the gospel ministry of your under-shepherds. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's Paul's word in verse 16 to young Timothy who was ministering to the church in Ephesus. And I say young Timothy because Timothy was under 40. And anyone under 40 could be categorized as young or as youthful in this culture. Most scholars put Timothy in his early to mid-30s. Most say mid-30s. Let's imagine that he's 35 years old. For those of you who don't know, Bobby is 35 years old. Timothy faced the same struggles that every young minister faces, especially the temptation to be timid and to let himself be despised by the older members, the, the founding members. But Timothy had it even worse than most. He had been sent to a church that had not called him to be their pastor. And Timothy's task was to cultivate peace and purity and unity and godly leadership in a congregation that lacked all of the above. The church in Ephesus contained false teachers and divisive people some of whom were in leadership. And keep in mind, Timothy wasn't invited by the church to come and and whip them into shape and address their problems. Okay, that's not the relationship here. Maybe some in the church wanted that and were glad to have him. Rather, he was sent by Paul and ultimately, 
as we'll see, he was sent by God. That's the important thing that we're going to home in on here. To speak and act on God's behalf. To minister God's word to a troubled congregation. As one Bible teacher put it, Paul picked up Timothy by the scruff of his neck and dropped him on the ecclesiastical chessboard in Ephesus where he may have felt like a pawn. The picture we get from First and Second Timothy is that the Ephesian church had not asked for help. They didn't write Paul requesting a minister to be sent. They didn't call the seminary and ask for a, a, a young whippersnapper to come down and shepherd them, these older members, through their dysfunctional situation. Now, at this point, some of you are no doubt spotting the differences between Timothy and Bobby. After all, we have invited Bobby to come and minister among us. And earlier this year, we even voted unanimously to lay hands on Bobby and to make him an ordained pastor in our midst, in our body. But the differences between Timothy's calling and Bobby's calling are are not actually as profound as we might think. For starters, Bobby, while it's true that Christ the King Church has called you to be one of her teaching elders, your calling is ultimately from God. When we voted on you in the spring, we weren't creating your call so much as we were recognizing and confirming the call that God has put on your life. It's not exactly like, but it's sort of like how the 4th century church councils began to recognize and confirm the inspired books of the Bible. It's not that that's when they became inspired. The ancient church didn't create the canon of Scripture so much as they merely formally acknowledged and publicly affirmed which books are inspired by God? Bobby, like Timothy, you've been sent here by God to minister His Word to us. You must always remember that. We must always remember that. Your job is to speak and act on God's behalf. Your calling is to a courageous ministry, a ministry of God's Word to this congregation. You're preaching and teaching and counseling and exhorting and encouraging and persuading and admonishing and advising and absolving and comforting and confronting will do us no good unless in all of those activities you're ministering God's Word to us. Individually, corporately, and everything in between. Formally, informally. We don't need a chaplain or a motivational speaker. We don't need TED Talks or inspirational speeches. We need a man of God with the fortitude and the humility to hear God's Word and then to speak it. That's what Paul needed. It's what the Ephesian church needed in Timothy. It's what we need in you. So your hospitality and home visitations and private conversations and sermons and email exchanges and hospital visits, and leadership moments, and public prayers, and private meetings must be infused with Christ and His gospel. 
if you're going to benefit us as our pastor. Whether, you're, whether you are moderating an elders meeting or officiating a wedding or leading Sunday school or having coffee with a member or counseling a married couple or conducting a funeral or baptizing a covenant child or administering the Lord's Supper, all your hearers in every one of those situations need to hear from God who has sent you to be a minister of His gospel. Now I'm telling you this, we're telling you this, because we believe it, and on a happy day like today, it's easy for us to believe it. It's easy for every one of us to affirm that yes, your call, Bobby, is fundamentally from God and not from us. But we need you to remember this, even if we forget it. That's part of the responsibility that's being placed on you today. You can't forget your calling. We need you to keep hearing from God through His Word by the power of His Spirit. And we need you to be a slave to His Word. And we need you to walk in the Spirit so that you can hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. And so that you can continue to tell us what God sent you here to say. Your calling may at times require you to tell all of us or some of us or one of us, including me, what we don't want to hear. You may need to show us what we don't want to see. And you'll only be able to do this as long as you're seeing clearly, as Timothy needed to see clearly, that you were sent here by God before you were called here by us. Your call from God is more fundamental than your call from us. They're both real, but your call from God is more fundamental. As soon as a pastor loses sight of God's call on his life, he becomes of no eternal benefit to the congregation to which God has sent him. And of course, none of this implies in the least that your relationship with the congregation should ever become antagonistic or demeaning or patronizing or roughshod. It's, it's not you over against the congregation ever, even when it might feel that way. You are, first of all, a sheep, a member of this body, and so you are accountable not just for us, but to us. You're not above the discipline and the government of this church. You're superior to no one in this congregation. But in addition to being a sheep, you also are becoming an ordained shepherd today, or better, an under-shepherd. As an under-shepherd, you are to imitate the good shepherd who always applies his rod and his staff in ways that comfort and edify the sheep. His nudging and prodding and hooking and pulling always lead the sheep to green pastures and still waters. When my son Alex was uh, a wee lad, he questioned me one day about my job. I hadn't been a pastor very long. He said, Daddy, what is a pastor? What, what do you do? What's, what's your job? And I told him that the word pastor means shepherd. I explained to him that I was actually just an under-shepherd 
That might be a better way to translate that. Because there's only one true shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, who has called me to be one of his under-shepherds. And, and so he listened, and after he, he turned that over in his mind for a minute or so, and he came back to me and said, so you're like a sheepdog. <laughs> and, and I said, yes, I mean, that's, that's a good analogy. But you see, a, sh- a good sheepdog doesn't go around nipping at the sheep just because he can. A good sheepdog is a dog after the shepherd's own heart. He does the shepherd's bidding. He cares for the sheep and guards the sheep and protects them from predators. The presence of a good sheepdog, like the presence of the shepherd himself, brings comfort to the sheep. The sheep are glad to have him in the field at night with them. God didn't send Timothy to Ephesus to rule the sheep with a heavy hand and an iron fist. He sent him there to shepherd the sheep with a gentle rod and a tender staff. Timothy's job wasn't to show up and roll heads, to whip people into shape. His job was to instruct hearts and save souls by the grace of God and the power of his word. No doubt this calling required Timothy to stand up to certain men. It required him to discipline some people. It required him to drive out the wolves who had taken up residence in the sheepfold. But if Timothy was performing his calling well, if he stayed true to his God-given mission, then the seeds he sowed would eventually produce fruit among the flock, among the faithful sheep. Timothy's faithfulness as an under-shepherd would lead and did lead to the spiritual comfort, protection, and salvation of those in his care. So how was Timothy supposed to accomplish this? What were his tools? How was he to survive and succeed as a pastor teacher in Ephesus? If you haven't turned to our passage yet, I invite everyone to open your Bible to 1 Timothy 4. In five verses, starting in verse 12, Paul gives young Timothy five instructions for surviving and succeeding in gospel ministry. Paul's first charge in verse 12 is to set a godly example for the Ephesian brethren. Let no one despise your youth, Paul says, but set an example for the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Bobby, character is everything in pastoral ministry. Godly character establishes your moral authority. Let's look again at Paul's six-fold list at the end of verse 12 there. You must set an example in word. Is there a guard over your mouth? Have you tamed your tongue? In conduct, do you not only call Jesus Lord, but also do what he says? Do you obey his commandments? In love, do you love God above all and do you love God's people as God loves them? In spirit, have you cultivated the gentle 
and lowly spirit of your Savior and Lord, the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ? Are you known for having His humble attitude as Paul describes it in Philippians 2? In faith, is your faith working itself out in love? Do people see in you how they ought to think and act in keeping with the faith? In purity, are you fleeing the evil desires of youth? Are you pursuing what Paul calls down in chapter 5, verse 2, absolute purity, all purity? Your natural inclination, especially perhaps when you're being criticized or when you're feeling beleaguered, will be to do the opposite of the sixfold list. Rather than imitating Christ, you'll be tempted to engage in sarcasm and put downs, even if just in private conversations or maybe even in your head, or to get a little witty about the wayward sheep or to vilify those who are vilifying you. Or when people question your leadership, you might be tempted to become presidential and aloof and imagine yourself a clerical island in a sea of fools. Never give in to these wicked attitudes and spirits and words and conduct. They're unloving, unfaithful, and impure. They set a godless example for the brethren. Church leadership is a matter of character from start to finish. Vocational ministry is a character vocation, if it's anything at all. Moral virtue is the spiritual capital that you trade in. It it enables you to speak effectively into people's lives. It's one of the means that God uses in ministering to his people. But the stakes are even higher than that. For better or worse... This congregation over time is going to take on the character of its leadership. It's just how it always works. I've seen it over and over again. Churches and really all institutions, including families, inevitably reflect the character of their leaders. There are even books written on this phenomenon. The longer you're an elder at Christ the King Church, Bobby, the more you'll see your virtues and your vices reflected in this body. It's a scary thing, uh, as every parent knows. It, it, can, it can be a very painful reality for parents and leaders to watch this phenomenon unfold over time. But by God's grace, your character can be a blessing to us. Character is everything. And so, Bobby, you must rise above those natural inclinations of your flesh by God's grace, by His Spirit working in you, and exemplify godliness in our midst with your tongue and with your eyes, in your heart and in your mind, with your hands and with your feet. You must overcome evil with good. God sent you here to be an example of godly character for the believers at Christ the King Church. Paul follows his exhortation to godly character with the command to ground his ministry in the Word, in the Word of God. Verse 13. Till I come, give attention 
to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. The reading Paul's talking about is the reading of Scripture. And many translations actually make that clear. Exhortation refers to preaching, what I'm doing even now. And doctrine refers to teaching. The difference between preaching and teaching is that preaching generally contains more exhortation. There's there's a ton of overlap, but if we want to make a distinction, here's a good verse. Preaching, generally speaking, should have more exhortation than what we call just teaching, maybe Sunday school or Bible study, that kind of a thing. So Paul calls preaching here exhortation. And verse 13 is a landmark text in defining the major work of the minister. Reading Scripture, explaining the Scripture, and exhorting God's people from the Scripture. Now, Paul isn't being original here. These activities were synagogue practices and, they, and they're rooted in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah 8, where it says the Israelites stood on this occasion from early morning to midday. They stood at least half the day, it says, listening attentively to Ezra and the other teachers present as they read God's word, expounded it, and applied it to their lives. Paul's directive to Timothy was to follow the reading of Scripture with preaching and teaching, with exhortation and instruction and doctrine. Another name for this is expository preaching and teaching. John Stott says, it was taken for granted from the beginning. He means from the apostolic age that Christian preaching would be expository preaching that is all Christian instruction and exhortation would be drawn out of the passage which had been read end quote expository preaching was the apostolic norm it was the centerpiece and high point of Christian worship without the reading and preaching of God's word, not just the reading, but also the preaching of God's word, there is no worship. And the corporate assembly on the Lord's day, or at least it's very truncated. And so Bobby, you and the congregation must always keep the word of God central and must always remember that Scriptural exhortation, biblical exposition must remain at the center of our life together, at the center of our fellowship, at the center of our worship if we are going to remain a true church of God. In the middle of the second century, not long after the last apostle had died, the church father Justin Martyr described the typical church service this way. Quote, On the day called Sunday... All who live in cities or in the country, we can identify with that, gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets, so the Old Testament and the New Testament, are read as long as time permits. You get the sense that they wanted to do it longer than they could. Then, 
when the reader has finished, the presiding minister speaks, instructing and exhorting the people to imitate these good things. That's exactly what Paul commanded Timothy to do. Any preaching that doesn't guide the congregation through Holy Scripture is a departure from the prophets and the apostles and the church fathers. Remember this congregation. Because it is on us as a body, it is on you as a congregation to make sure that this remains central. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, even if I or an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel to you, they are accursed. Kick them out. Drive them away. Now this sounds the alarm on many pulpits where the Scriptures are read but not engaged with seriously. Instead of teaching and exhortation, the congregation gets anecdotes and jokes, stories, superficial pep talks often take, play, take the place of in-depth Bible exposition. Instead of a, the application of biblical truths, the people in the pews get therapy or politics or social advocacy. Never let that creep in, people of God. Never let that creep in, Bobby. Bobby, your preaching and teaching is to be radically biblical and thoroughly expositional. If, if biblical exhortation is not central to the worship service, there is no proper worship. We, we can have true worship, a true worship service on a Sunday morning without the sacraments. I'm not saying that's ideal, but, but it's possible. But biblical worship is impossible without the exposition of Scripture. Word-centeredness is the key to your survival and success as a minister and it's the key to our survival and success as a church. The next verse refers to Timothy's ordination. <clears throat> verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the elders or the body of elders, or the eldership. to combat the doubts and discouragement and perhaps the withering criticisms of his ministry, Timothy was to remember and reflect on the, that significant moment in the past when Paul and a group of elders laid their hands on Timothy and prayed for him and when a word from God was spoken about his future ministry, about his calling from God. Paul had already mentioned the prophecies spoken about Timothy back in chapter 1 of this same book. Presumably, these prophecies designated Peter, uh, uh, Timothy as a person that God had called, just as the Holy Spirit had sig singled out Paul and Barnabas for gospel ministry in, in a similar way, in a similar context back in Acts 13. But most interesting is in this verse is the part about the gift what gift was timothy given well we're not told explicitly but all agree that it had something to do with the grace that he needed to perform his duty as a minister in this local congregation in ephesus it almost certainly had to do 
primarily with his calling as a preacher and teacher. Paul repeatedly charges Timothy to minister the word. It's it's the thing that comes up most when he's charging him. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Paul expects Timothy to have the word of God right there in every moment of his ministry. Paul's purpose in recalling Timothy's ordination service was to encourage him not to neglect his gift, but rather, what does Paul say later? To fan it into what? Flame, yeah. Fan it into flame, a a wonderful picture there, a visual. In his second letter, uh, Paul says to Timothy, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You you get this sense in 1 and 2 Timothy that Timothy was timid. He needed to be encouraged to boldness. Bobby, God's calling and gift in you isn't a static, once-for-all, permanent, unchanging endowment from God if you don't use it cultivate it fan it into flame you'll lose it you know use it or lose it don't neglect it cultivate it stoke it as you do so you will commend your ministry ministry to the saints and silence the gainsayers so we've seen so far that Timothy's ministry would survive and succeed first as long as he was pursuing godly character second as long as he as he grounded his ministry in the word in the exposition of scripture and third as long as he did not neglect but instead used his god-given gift in verse 15 paul links timothy's success to two things Two words, diligence and progress. Diligence and progress. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Here's how the ESV translates that verse. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Here's how the NASB translates it, New American Standard. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. NIV, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. The best paraphrase I found is from the Revised English Bible. Make these matters your business Make them your absorbing interest. Bobby, you're being ordained today to live and breathe these things. There is no substitute for hard work and there's no success and vocational ministry apart from it. There never has been and there never will. There might be the appearance of success when there's really sloth or cutting corners the way the world measures success, but you cannot believe 
that your, your ministry is successful before God apart from diligence. Preparing biblical sermons in particular is hard work, as you know. It's, it's a demanding, often even painful and frustrating process. John Stott was right, when, and he said in an interview two or three decades ago, there is no form of preaching that is more demanding on one's time and energies than biblical exposition. You'll never get to the point where you will be able to preach effectively apart from your diligence in your study. We expect you, God who sent you, expects you to give your whole life first to making progress in godly character and then to making progress in your ability to handle God's word and feed it to the flock, to the lambs, to the sheep. And progress is important. Paul wanted Timothy to make observable progress. So Bobby, you need to make observable progress, even as you already have. You mustn't allow, and, and this applies to me too, you, you mustn't allow yourself to arrive at a certain point and then coast. Your example to us and your ministry among us must be dynamic and progressive, not static and complacent. People should be able to witness not only what you are, but also what you are becoming. They need to see a trajectory. This is true of every Christian, of course, in the Christian life, but it's all the more important for gospel ministers to be visibly growing into maturity in Christ. This means, by the way, that you're free from the burden of having to appear perfect as having arrived with no foibles, flaws, or faults. It's good for the rest of the sheep to know and occasionally see that their shepherds are sinners who have not yet arrived. Even Paul openly confessed that he wasn't perfect yet. In Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, that's complete, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So don't get caught up in trying to give the false impression that you're better than you are, that you're someone you're not. We need to see you as a pilgrim on the same journey we're on, pressing on and making it, Christ and His gospel, your own. You're a guide to the celestial city, but you're also a fellow traveler with all the same trials and temptations. But we do need to see you making progress through diligence, through hard work that is sometimes painful as you give yourself over to living and expositing God's Word. At the end of 1 Timothy 4, in the final verse, Paul summarizes his exhortation in the whole paragraph. And he summarizes it by charging Timothy to pay close attention both to himself and to his teaching ministry with the goal of saving both himself and those who are under his teaching ministry. Verse 16, take heed to yourself 
and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says something similar to the Ephesian elders, actually, in Acts 20. Verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, he says there. Really, everything Paul has told Timothy in these five verses, in this paragraph, can be boiled down to these, to these two categories. Pay close attention to yourself, particularly your character, and pay close attention to God's flock, especially your ministry of word to them in all its various facets. If you're faithful in this, Bobby, you'll save yourself and us. That's a jarring statement at the end of verse 16, isn't it? Isn't it? I didn't explain it at the beginning of the sermon on purpose because I just wanted it to sort of be a little bit unsettling maybe when you, when you hear save yourself and save your hearers. Does Paul really believe Timothy can save himself and save those who hear his ministry? Has, has Paul forgotten that salvation is of the Lord? 100% by grace alone and Christ alone? Through faith alone? Of course not. Paul is using a shorthand to emphasize the means by which God accomplishes his good purposes of salvation. Our salvation originates in God's grace and mercy, but it manifests itself in godly character. That's why Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But in the very next sentence in Philippians 2 there, he says, but it's God who is working out this salvation in you. But there is a command to work it out with fear and trembling because that is the means and the fruit. It's why Peter says to be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So, Bobby, save yourself by paying close attention to your life, to your character, but also save God's people by paying close attention to your instruction to them in biblical doctrine. The church needs more theology, not less. We need more theological exposition of Scripture, not less. Bobby, we need you to bring us closer to God through, this, through the clear explanation and application of Bible doctrine. Timothy had a tough gig. He was called by God to shepherd a church made up in part of heretics and schismatics, some of whom were in leadership. A church whose older influential members, perhaps the founding members, despised him allegedly because of his youth. A church that had not called him formally to be their pastor. And so if Timothy could survive and succeed in pastoral ministry, so can you, Bobby, as long as you cultivate godly character. 
Minister God's word. Exercise your gift. Fan it into flame. Work hard. Continue to make progress and pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching ministry in the flock, to the flock, among the flock. In so doing, you will work out your own salvation and you will help us to work out ours as we journey together toward the heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you in the name of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, with gratitude in our hearts that you have created by your Spirit and through the blood of Jesus the church, even this congregation, a bride for your Son. And God, we desire to love you and obey your commandments and to glorify you even in this local assembly. We thank you for sending Bobby to us to help us, to bring us to maturity in Christ, to full manhood, to mature manhood in him. And God, we pray that you would bless his ministry among us, that he would have many decades of fruitful service to you and to us. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.